open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, our focus today will be on verses 1 and 2. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, as we prepare to go through this letter, I pray you would bless this day and this series to build us up in Christ in harmony holiness, and happiness to the glory and praise of your name. In Christ's name we ask this, amen. The most striking thing about this standard Pauline opening is just how simply standard it is. Now, before I can really unpack what I mean by that, you have to begin by realizing how Paul's standard openings are exceptional. They stand out. There's nothing exceptional about the form Paul uses, it's the content that fills that form. So ancient letters would follow the same pattern we see Paul employ again and again. Our author, recipient, greeting, thanksgiving. That's what we just read through in verses 1 through 11. And we see that again and again. But typically, ancient letters were really thin in the opening. So it's as though the pagans were uh, really concerned about their cholesterol. If openings are butter, they put it on really thin. Paul puts on a healthy glob. He, He stands out that way. But because the only ancient letters we probably read frequently are those of the New Testament, we don't, we don't see this. Paul, even in his most simply standard of greetings, is exceptional in comparison to the majority of ancient letters. And so, Paul doesn't simply say, as you might expect, from Paul. 
It's always something like Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And he doesn't simply say, to the believers at Philippi. It's something like, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with overseers and deacons. And Paul doesn't simply say, greetings. That would be the typical Greek or Roman way in their letter of expressing greetings. One word, greetings. More strictly translated, the word they would use would mean rejoice. Paul uses a variant of that same word that means grace, but then always adds to it, peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's standard openings are exceptional. Not only are they expanded in almost every instance, just by reading the introduction, you get a sense for the themes that are to unfold throughout his whatever letter you're, you're looking at. And to see this, just to, to see how this works, read Galatians this afternoon, and then go back and read the introduction real slow. And you'll see how, how Paul does this. But here, though Paul's opening is exceptional in contrast to his typical openings, the most exceptional thing about this, in, this opening in relation to Paul's other letters is just how slim it is. It's stripped down to just the most basic shared elements in comparison to his other letters. So if Paul has a garage of customs that stand out from the typical automobiles you see driving down the road. And they're all, they're all just, they're exceptional. They stand out. And this one does too. But this one is the rat rod in the garage. It is stripped down. There is, there's just the essentials glaring at you as you look at it. And the irony is that this simplicity itself speaks to the nature of the letter. That Paul, in stripping this down, doesn't... Uh, you might say, well, then in this introduction, he can't do what he's doing in other letters where he's communicating to you the themes that are going to come up. No, by actually stripping this down, he does speak to the content of this letter. This letter is void of any major controversy, so that many have styled it a friendship letter. Or we might refer to it as a thank you letter. A thank you letter from a kind fatherly figure to an adoring child that's full of warmth and counsel. There are no major scandals, as we see in Corinth. There's no uh, threatening heresy, as we see in Galatia. There's been a gift sent by the adoring Philippians to Paul to provide for him as he's in prison. And Paul, in response, this warm letter full of gratitude, thanksgiving, and counsel. So understanding then something of the nature of this letter, you can see why uh, many have said that the theme is just the Christian life. Simply understood the Christian life. And this is why D.A. Carson's expositions of this letter 
are titled Basics for Believers. That's something of what you get from Philippians. Basics for Believers. Or Martin Lloyd-Jones, two volumes on Philippians are titled Life of Joy, Life of Peace. That kind of basic elemental understanding of the Christian life that it's a life of joy and peace is, is conveyed by this letter. So the bare bones greeting then conveys something of the bare bones exhortation that we have in this letter. And with that, I think we see three themes that dominate this letter. Three themes that are to characterize the Christian life. One, happiness. Two, harmony. Three, holiness. Happiness, harmony, holiness. You might have preferred that I use a different word for happiness. Let, let, me, let me say something else before I get into that, though. I'd encourage you to take a notepad sometime this week. Make three columns, happiness, holiness, harmony. Take those three columns, read through the letter, and every time you come across a passage that you think you can put into one or more of those to write the reference down under it. And when you finish, I think you will have put the bulk of this book under one of those three headings. Well, you might have a problem with, though, with that heading of happiness, preferring that I say joy instead of happiness. And, and you'll, you'll hear it often said within Christian circles that uh, Christians have joy. This, this, this world may have happiness, Christians have joy. And there's something to that. I understand what's intended there, but it's not as if Christians have some kind of sixth sense, an, an emotion, a kind of capacity that's completely alien to their unbelieving friends. The Christian, what distinguishes him is not so much his emotional capacities and ranges that he has as he walks through life, it's rather who and what he knows and experiences that distinguishes him from this world. So, Look through this letter for all the references to joy, rejoicing, thanksgiving, gratitude, peace, contentment. That's everything that I'm considering under this heading of happiness. Sinners can know something of all those things. They can know something of contentment and, and joy and thankfulness. But they only know trickling brooks. What sets the saints apart is not that they experience something different, it's that Rather than playing in the brooks, we, we swim in the roaring river from which all these things flow. Now by harmony, I intend you note all the references in this letter to unity, love, getting along, serving one another. And then holiness, referring to exhortations to grow and sanctification and righteousness. And as we proceed along, I also want you to notice how interrelated all these three things are. The happiness of the saints is not one rooted in wickedness or selfish isolation. It's a happiness in harmony with others and in holiness. Our harmony is to be full of joy and purity. And our holiness is not to be that of some uh, somber hermetic monk. 
to not only see these three themes then, but to see them in relation to one another, listen to chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, but to will and to work for His good pleasure. That would be sanctification, holiness. Do all these things without grumbling, meaning do them with joy. Or disputing, meaning there should be unity and harmony. That you may be blameless and innocent, back to holiness. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Again, holiness. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Happiness, joy. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, with that groundwork laid, let's begin at the beginning. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy. What are we to make of these authorial pairings? This co-authorship that we see so often in Paul's letters. Of Paul's 13 letters, six of them include a co-author. Most often, Timothy, mentioned five times. Uh, Silvanus, twice. Sosthenes, once. How, how are we to understand all these instances of apparent co-authorship. What do they mean? Now, as you look at Paul's letter, the first person plural, I, dominates them. Save for uh, the letters to the Thessalonians and 2 Corinthians. In those three letters, we see a lot of we. And yet, as you look at them as a whole, and even those letters where he speaks we so often, you understand that Paul's voice dominates his letters. So we're right to refer to them as Paul's letters. So why are these other men included at times? The most common speculation is that they indicate the men who acted as Paul's secretaries. That Paul used a secretary is plain from his letters. This is typical fare in ancient letter writing. That he used a secretary, we know. The guess is that the co-authorship indicates the secretary that he used. And I think that's very well the case, but I think there's something much more important that's being conveyed in these instances. These men that we see listed as co-authors have a special function. They labored alongside Paul such that at times he could refer to them as co-workers. In chapter 2 and verse 22, he speaks of Timothy serving alongside him as a son with a father. Now listen to 2 Corinthians 1.19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him is always yes. So remember, 2 Corinthians is one of those where the third person plural, we, dominates much of that letter. And he says, we proclaimed it, and the we is Silvanus, Timothy, and I, these co-workers who are alongside Paul. As Paul is out evangelizing, planting churches, 
he's including these men with him in this kind of work. And there's a kind of, as you read 2 Corinthians, and the kind of work and ministry that Paul has in mind there, it's Christian ministry in general, but there's a kind of apostolic flavor. These men aren't apostles, but Paul is yet kind of identifying him with him in such a way as he's saying, we, 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 there's a kind of apostolicity that you're feeling and sensing every time Paul says, we, and yet it includes people that aren't apostles. What's at work here? Add this to it. Paul often sends these very men. He sends Timothy to Corinth. He sends Timothy to Thessalonica. We understand in chapter 2 and verse 19, it's his intent to send Timothy to Philippi. Whenever we read Acts 19.22, we see that Paul did send Timothy to Philippi. So, what's happening Get at it this way. Often you'll hear Timothy referred to as the elder or pastor at Ephesus. I don't think that's correct or helpful. 1 Timothy 1.3 is what that's based on. But I think you read that. You read Timothy. It's clear. Paul is not at Ephesus. Excuse me. Timothy is not at Ephesus as their elder He's at Ephesus as Paul's envoy. His presence in Ephesus, what he's doing there, is not acting in a capacity as their elder, but as Paul's envoy, as his apostolic ambassador. So why, what's this co-authorship about? Yes, I think they were a secretary. They were in with Paul as these letters are being written. And the real reason I think Paul includes them is because it's these very men that acting as his apostolic ambassadors, often delivering these letters or going to these churches after they've read these letters, they come and they can explain, this is Paul's intent. They carry a kind of apostleship with them indirectly as they go forward. I think that's what this is about. Now in this instance, as in no other letter, the bond between... The co-authors is heightened, emphasized. Paul always includes some description of himself. This is the only place he includes someone else with him in the same description. So, in 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus by the will of God. And then he says, and Timothy our brother. We have co-authorship there. This is the only time where the co-authors both share the same description. Both servants of Christ Jesus. You see, in this instance, Paul, with this letter, think why this is able to function here. Because in this letter, Paul is free of any controversy that really aims at his apostolicity. He doesn't have to lay that down. So being free of that, it's just a servant of Christ. He brings Timothy in with that. But the word servants here, dealing with the original language, is about like if you're translating out of English, substituting Kool-Aid for vodka. They're both drinks, but there's a lot of potency lost in that translation. Translating this 
Servants is, is weak sauce. The word is slaves. The critical difference between the two is that whereas a servant serves, a slave not only serves, he's owned. Paul does not simply serve Jesus. Paul is owned by Jesus. In the ancient world, slavery was not rooted in race. It wasn't limited to the most menial task. A slave could have a better lot than many freemen. So, Murray J. Harris explains, the nature of any slavery is determined by the nature of the master. Who and what the master is determines the status of the slave, the attitude of the slave, the significance of the slave's work. For example, to be in the employ of the emperor as a member of the household of Caesar, some 20,000 in number, gave the slave a significant status and certain prestige, which was usually reflected in a positive work attitude, as we would call it, and a sense of contributing in some way, however insignificant, to the smooth running of, the, of that massive machine called the Roman Empire. Now, there is certainly the other side of the, uh, ugly, the ugly side of the spectrum. But that's not what we're dealing with here. That's not our subject matter this morning, because we're talking about those who are slaves of Christ Jesus. The nature of any slavery is determined by the nature of the master. Harris continues, when the master is the omnipotent Lord of the universe, the slavery is a consummate privilege and a passionate delight as well as being infinitely worthwhile. You are not God. As Dylan saying, you got to serve somebody. So you are either a slave of sin or you're a slave of Christ. You are born either a slave of sin or you are reborn a slave of Christ. And actually both of these are an expression that you are under the absolute sovereignty of God. You are either under His condemnation and judgment and curse as a rebel, or you are under His redemption as a slave and a son. While all saints are slaves of Christ, Paul's slavery here has a specific nature to it. Not all slaves have the same office. His slavery is expressed as an apostleship. Of Jesus Christ. And so to take offense at Paul's self reference here as a slave of Christ Jesus is to take offense at his master on whose behalf he speaks with his authority in this letter. Now, as a slave of Christ Jesus, Paul writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus, verse 1. And the word all very likely relates to this theme of harmony that we'll see fill out as we go through this letter. Only three times in Paul's letter does he so designate, uh, use all in this way. All the saints does so in Romans and First and Second Corinthians as well. And as you observe the theme of unity throughout this letter, and then you come to Paul's closing and examine it, it's hard not to reckon that he intends to convey unity in his opening with this word all. 
So listen to the closing, Philippians 4, 21 through 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So Paul says, greet every saint, just as he's modeled greeting every one of them. All the saints send their greetings to them. Now to bring what's happening here, this letter, home to you, you need to realize whenever you read Paul writing to all the saints that you who are reading this, if you're believers, you are all saints. This is written to all the saints. And you are all, every one of you, saints. The saints are not some special task force within the body of Christ. The body of Christ is comprised of saints. To say saints is virtually the same, essentially, as saying church. Saints means set apart, distinct, holy. Whenever Paul refers to them as Saints, he's referring, referring not to, uh, specifically, he looks at their life and they're saintly. That should be the case. What he's saying is, positionally, because of what God has done in saving them, they are distinct from all those who are not saved. They're saints. So whenever we speak of the church, church means assembly, We're speaking about the assembly of God. And that assembly is distinct from this world. The saints are the church. When you say church, you've already said saints. Saints is Paul's most common way of addressing believers. The word appears some 60 times in the New Testament. Whenever you survey older Christian literature, early church fathers... The medieval scholastics, the reformers, the Puritans. Even reading someone as as recent as B.B. Warfield, turn of the 19th century. Whenever Whenever you read these authors, you'll find saints a much more common way of addressing the people of God. It's a way we do well to... we. We'd do good to recover. And if you think, ah, it just, it would feel weird, it would feel odd, well, recognize this. It's always been odd. It's not as if Paul, it's not as if other ancient letters had saints in it. This is part of the thing that made Paul's letters exceptional, made them stand out. They were distinct. They were different from the letters of the world because he's referring to this body of people that he says are saints. It was a uniquely Christian thing to do. It was a very saint-like thing to do. It set them apart. They were different in this. It's the sort of thing that made Paul's letters stand out. If you're avoiding it to be less awkward, well, that is very unsaint-like. You're not that distinct. And so be a saint. And Use this form of greeting. Use this form of reference to to the people of God. They are saints. They are saints in Christ Jesus. And this gets to why we should be so zealous to use 
this term of ad- in, in addressing one another. Not because we want to make much of ourselves, but because we want to make much of Christ. It is only in Him that we are saints. If you are a believer, you are in Christ. And it's only because you are in Christ that you're reckoned a saint. You're holy. You're set apart from the mass of sinners. You were once a sinner. But now in Christ, you've been counted righteous. His blood has cleansed you. You've been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and delivered into His kingdom, a kingdom of light. You are no longer a child of wrath, but a child of God. You do not belong to this age, but to the age to come because you've risen with Christ. You're no longer a slave to this world. You're a son and a slave. Son of God and slave to Christ. All of this is communicated by this word saint. It's a way to glory in the salvation that you have in Christ. That word in, that little word, in. As it's followed by Christ, Christ Jesus, our Lord, Him, some mixture thereof. That little word in conveys the great doctrine of our salvation. Union with Christ. Variations of this phrasing, most of the time communicating something of this doctrine, union with Christ, occur over 160 times in Paul's letters. So one scholar rightly says, the heart of Paul's religion is union with Christ. This, more than any other conception, is the key which unlocked the secrets of his soul. John Murray wrote in his little classic, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, Nothing is more central or basic than union and communion with Christ. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, not only in its application, but in its once-for-all accomplishment in the finished work of Christ. Why are you saved? Because you were elect in Christ before the foundation of the world. Because whenever Christ came into this world, He came as the second Adam. He came as the federal head. He came as the representative of a new humanity, the elect. So that whenever He lived unto God, fulfilling the law, fulfilling all righteousness, that righteousness is their righteousness because He's in union with them. So that whenever He dies... Bearing the wrath of God, He's bearing that wrath for those with whom He is in union, acting as their substitute and representative. And whenever He rises, His resurrection is their resurrection. Sometimes, that's not completely bad, but sometimes you'll hear us say that because Christ died, we live. There's truth to that. But really, it's because Christ lives that we live. Because He died, we won't die bearing the wrath of God. It's because He lived that we lived. And we're in union with Him. And the Spirit then comes along. You see, all this is happening in a way that can be quite feel independent of us. 
It just is. He's in union with us. He's acting as our federal head and representative. But the Spirit then puts us into mystical or vital or living union with Christ so that all that Christ is then begins to come to us. The benefits and blessings of salvation made ours as we are put into vital living union with Christ. Every covenant blessing, every promise that comes to us from God the Father comes in Christ. There is no element of salvation you enjoy independent of Christ. Everything, the totality of everything you enjoy from God in being a saint, a son, comes in Christ. So do you see just how saintly, how holy, how distinct you are from this world, not because of you, but because of Him that you've been put into union with. Your saints in Christ Jesus. So let's return to the matter then of addressing one another as saints. Understanding our union with Christ. Can you see more clearly why it is David would then sing as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. How is that not blasphemy? To say all my delight. The only person who should receive all is God. So how can David say all my delights in them? Because... He understands that his delight in the people of God is a delight in God. Because there's nothing delightful about them outside of God's redeeming love and grace. Everything that makes them beautiful is their being in Christ. Our delight in one another is a delight in Christ, which makes it all the more striking that this is written to all the saints. Unity in the church is grounded in unity in Christ. All the saints in Christ. If there is a in Christness, there should be an allness, a unity. Now, through his closing, the allness expands beyond the church at Philippi. Greet every saint. All the saints greet you. The allness expands beyond Philippi. But here in the opening, the allness refers specifically to this body, to all the saints who, in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Paul, on his second missionary journey, comes to Lystra. And there we find the young disciple Timothy, 
that Paul wants to accompany him on his journeys is picked up. And then Paul receives the Macedonian call to go into Macedonia. And the first, as in obedience to that call from God, the first place he comes to is Philippi, which is the first church Paul then plants on what we now refer to as Europe. And you can read all this in Acts 16. And so with that, you can understand why, it, why this letter being written to the Philippians would speak of Timothy. Paul's just picked him up. He's, he's with Paul whenever this church is planted. You can see why Paul would send Timothy to them. You remember as at Philippi, Acts 16, that we find Lydia, the seller of purple, who opens her home to them. And then after that, there is a slave girl who has a spirit of divination. And Paul commands the spirit to come out of her in the name of Jesus. And that being done, the owners of the slave girl are not happy. They speak to the local magistrates who then have Paul beaten and imprisoned. And that's whenever we see Paul and Silas singing in prison hymns and psalms to God. And an earthquake comes so that the doors are rattled open and the jailer is ready to commit suicide because he will be held personally responsible for any prisoners who escape. But he's intercepted by Paul. We're all here. And something of the cumulative effect of all of this weighs upon the jailer so that he falls before them and pleads, Sir, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You and your household. The next day, the magistrates send to have them released. Paul refuses. Because he, a Roman citizen, has been beaten and imprisoned without a trial. And now they are scared. They come and apologize and politely ask him to leave. Now, why are they so fearful at that point? Well, it's not simply that Paul is a Roman citizen with special rights thereas. Philippi is a Roman colony with special rights thereas. And while many cities were under Roman rule, a select few were designated as Roman colonies with those born in those cities then granted Roman citizenship. Now it's a poor analogy, but something like this is happening. Imagine that the police at Lawton, Lawton Police Force, wrongly imprison and abuse a man. And then they discover that he's a four-star general. It's one thing to wrongly imprison and abuse anyone. But then whenever you find out his rank and his person, that adds weight to this. And then for it to be a military town on top of that, you see. Something like that is what has just happened. This is why they're fearful. A further significance of Philippi being a Roman colony will be brought out soon. But finally in addressing who this letter is to, Paul does something unique to Philippians here. This is the one aspect that's not so standard, if you will, in this standard greeting. 
he brings in the overseers and deacons into his address. This is the only time, other than 1 Timothy 3, that overseers and deacons are spoken of side by side. Now, Titus 1, along with multiple other places, but especially Titus 1, makes it abundantly clear that overseers are elders. Same office, overseers and elders. And the New Testament makes it plain, this is what we refer to as pastors or shepherds. Deacons are the servants of the church uh, tasked with uh, tending to their physical needs. And so note that within this singular church, there are overseers and deacons, plural. Singular church, multiple elders, and deacons. Use your Bible search function and search overseers, overseer, elder, singular. And note that throughout the New Testament, read from Acts forward, every time we see those words used in reference to the church, it's plural. Save for an instance where you're speaking of a particular elder, speaking of himself, or speaking of a particular elder. But whenever we're speaking about the leadership of the church, it's not ever said something like the elder of the church. It's always plural. It's something like what we see in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, where Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Why does Paul address them? I can't find anything really substantial within the letter itself that hints as to why Paul did this. But whenever you understand their office and function, what should surprise you is not that Paul does so here, but that he doesn't do so more often in his other letters. Now we come to Paul's familiar greeting. Grace and peace. Grace refers to God's goodwill, His favor, His kindness. God's grace is not simply undeserved, it is ill-deserved. It's not that we haven't merited it, we've demerited His grace. Before we are saints in Christ Jesus, we are ain'ts in Adam. There ain't nothing good or worthy in us. Now, while grace is a, is a variation on the typical Greek greeting meaning rejoice, peace is imported from the Old Testament. Shalom. And so as you read through Paul's letters, you'll see that whenever he speaks of peace with this Hebrew understanding, it's not simply the absence of conflict, it is the presence of wholeness, rightness, completeness, things being as they should be. While grace and peace are objective realities that are found in Christ, we have grace and peace. Jesus Christ, having redeemed us, we have peace with God the Father. But what Paul is desiring here in his letter, saying grace to you and peace from God the Father, is that they experience, they know Something of this grace and peace. Or put it this way. Verse 1, whenever it says we are saints in Christ Jesus, speaks of our union with Christ. And now, whenever he says grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, he's speaking of 
communion with Christ. They have union. And out and of and because of that union, Paul desires that they have communion with Christ. How are these things to be conveyed to them? How is this grace and peace to come to them? How does this grace and peace come to you? Here's one way we see in the letter. Chapter 4 and verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the peace of God will be with you. How many Churches, gatherings of saints are trying to work up some kind of of emotion and feeling and experience of grace and peace. And there's a kind of emotional euphoria. What's sad is they've deluded themselves. That they've known God's grace and peace by things that cannot convey them. What conveys grace and peace here? First, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. The apostolic word and teaching of God is the instrument through which you will receive grace and peace. And then add this on top of it. Practice these things. You want to commune with God? Listen to Him and obey Him. Any parent This should be obvious to any parent. You really want to have intimacy with your children. You know it's happening when you speak. And they hear. And they do. And they obey. That's union and communion that's happening in such a situation like that. Whenever that's joyfully entered into by both parties. You want communion with God? Hear His voice. Hear it with hunger. Hear it with earnestness. Hear it with a slave-like disposition, open hands, and obey it. And you do that. You walk that path. And whenever hard things come in your life, you will know the peace of God. You walk in a path of disobedience, and you start to suffer, you will know peace. You'll know conviction. You'll know you need to repent and turn. But you want the peace of God to be over your life? You want to know communion with Him? It's this simple. Hear His voice and walk in the path of love and trust and obedience. Because that's expressing not simply a heart of openness and tenderness to God. What you're really expressing whenever you do that is that you believe His promises. You believe these things are true. And it's in the the really rock-solid belief that what God is speaking to you, do you sense the communion now? He's speaking and you're believing it. That's communion with your Lord. Paul does not use a broadcast fertilizer to spread this grace and peace. He waters it in a walled garden. Grace and peace To you, to the saints who are in Christ Jesus. That's where this grace and peace comes from. It's they who know God as Father in Christ, and they know Christ as Lord 
in Christ. You've come back to being a slave of Christ with that. Because they're in union with Christ, because that's so, because they're in union with Him such that God is their Father and Christ is their Lord, that they commune with the triune God is not a pipe dream that Paul hopes for. It is a certainty. Because they are in Christ, grace and peace are sure to be their experience. Why is that so? Jump ahead just for a bit. Because Paul's sure that he who began a good work in them will see it through until the day of completion. We are sons of God the Father, slaves of Christ Jesus, in union with Christ. We commune with Christ as we receive these expressions of God's love with receiving them with faith and belief. And out of that faith and belief, walking in obedience, obeying His commands. With this, we come to what might be the most controversial thing that Paul writes in this letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and, this is the most controversial thing I think Paul has in his greetings as he's writing to these saints at Philippi. The Lord Jesus Christ. What's so shocking? Mind you, Philippi was a Roman colony. And as such, that would mean that the Roman imperial cult had an especially strong presence here. There were many temples at Philippi, but critical to their identity as a Roman colony would be the Roman imperial cult temple. And the central confession of that cult and the one that Rome would insist on throughout the empire You could worship whatever gods you want, but you had to subscribe to this religion in part and make this confession, which would be all the more essential in this Roman colony. Caesar is Lord. That's their confession in one sentence. John Frame says that the chief message of the Old Testament is God is the Lord. The chief message of the New Testament is Jesus Christ is Lord. To say that God is Lord is to say that everything else is His servant. You see why this would be so controversial? Writing to this Roman colony. And addressing them in this way. When Paul speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. We we need to understand that lordship as an absolute lordship. It's over everything. But even more specifically it's a redemptive lordship. So it's absolute. He's lord over all and this includes Caesar. But he's lord over Caesar as a rebel that he uses. 
The same way we've seen in our recent study of Jeremiah, he used Babylon. He's speaking to the saints, though, of their Lord Jesus Christ. The redemptive sense is that they are his slaves. And that as they are in him, they are sons of God the Father. To speak of this absolute redemptive lordship of Jesus Christ then goes contrary to everything that Philippi is built on. Contrary to her history, her reasoning, her way of thinking, her way of looking at the world. To speak of the lordship of Jesus Christ in this way is a most saint-like way of speaking. It's different. It sets us apart. This is the fundamental confession of the saints. Jesus Christ is Lord. And it stands against everything Babylon believes. So let us return to this most saint-like way of greeting one another. As saints in the Lord Jesus Christ. To greet one another as saints in Christ. Wishing them grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Only two verses. Three parts. From to greeting. Two verses, three parts, and three times. Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. Now you see, not only what is the true and deepest theme of this letter, But the theme of all Paul's letters, the theme of all the scriptures, Jesus Christ. Yes, spoke of the themes of happiness, holiness, harmony. But the real theme of this letter is Christ. And it's only in Him that this happiness and harmony and holiness Have any real existence. Outside of Christ. You may know trickling. Drying up streams of these things. As evidence of God's common grace. That this is simply his world. And it reflects his glory. And you taste little trickles of those things. But in Christ. The river. Rushes on you. Flowing with holiness. Happiness. And harmony. Outside of Christ. Those streams that you taste of. Will dry up and you will know only death. In Christ though. There is grace. And peace to be found. In bowing to him. As Lord. In repentance and faith. And So if you're asking now like that Philippian jailer. Sir, what must I do to be saved? The answer is the same. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. And being saved, you will be then 
a slave of Christ. A saint in Christ. And in the Son, a Son of God. And their grace and peace will certainly and eternally be upon you. Praise His holy name. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come to You saying that in Christ, we pray in His name. We pray not simply in His name, by that we express we pray in Him. In union with Him, we come and we commune with You in prayer, pleading grace and peace as Your saints, as slaves of Your Son, as being in Him Your children. Father, for the glory of Your name, grace and peace be upon Your church. Amen.